what we've turned the job of the farmer into is a producer of widgets uh, in the form primarily of corn and soybeans and palm oil. Oh, uh, God, palm, yeah. And those crops have become the foundations of our entire food system, of the entire way that we supposedly feed ourselves and our children. But in scaling that up to such a large extent that it exists now, we've removed the relationship between farmers and the land. We've removed the ability of farmers to earn a decent living for themselves unless they're growing this non-nutritious shit that then gets turned into other non-nutritious shit. We are making them drug dealers for poisons. Like when you're talking about like corn syrup and palm oil and, um, and even just sugar in general, we are moving the means of production for the very fuel for our bodies and turning it into a soulless and destructive feedback loop. Because those factory farming techniques not only poison the land and the soil in the form of pesticides and herbicides, they deprive the soil of nutrients because those crops don't get rotated with other crops that also provide different nutrients into the soil. They, this yeah, ends like, up, this factory model in terms of our meat leads to the same problem as the lack of janitors that you're talking about in the hospital situation, which is rampant disease that, and the use of antibiotics in both our species. in agriculture and in the way we loosely prescribe them to people. Yeah, but it's gotten to the point now where we use vastly more antibiotics to keep our food supply edible. But it <laughs> also so. doesn't make them edible on the longer aggregate right. scale. Right. It makes exactly. bacteria more resistant. Exactly. And I again I think that is I think that is an understandable consequence of, of a society organized around profit. Profiting now. Yes. Is that when problems arise, whether it's diseases or whether it's a bubble bursting in the economy, we are able to treat the external symptoms, but we are not at all getting to the root cause. We are not getting deep down enough to identify the cycles, for instance, the massive warehousing of animals to become food animals stacked to the fucking rafters that need to be pumped full of antibiotics to literally not shit themselves in each other to mass death. The contortions of ethics and of nature and of biology and chemistry that are necessary to prop up these fictions, we're now getting to the point where that don't, no longer works, where those coping mechanisms and those ways that we avoid getting to the root of our problems no longer fix and are no longer sufficient. been the major issue with modern capitalism is the sense that it has always focused on 
profit and not, for example, you know, when you build computers, recycling of any new product. How do you best recycle? How do you best manage? And, it, and again, that, the kind of avoidance culture, the loss aversion, and we that have is part, shipped that is built that into that to system. other countries to deal with the toxic waste, to deal with the lack of environmental laws in those countries, and this should be criminal. The problem is that if it is criminalized, then we are all to be punished. The Profit model yes. of organizing a society, I think, is what makes us strive toward vengeance. But I don't think that vengeance really leads us to justice. And one of the last words I define in this episode of the By That I Mean podcast, I think real justice and real healing only come when we identify the faulty leaps in emotion, the leaps of logic the negative feedback loops that we have been engaging. It's only when we're able to dig that deep down or when we're ground that deep down that we can no longer afford the luxury of engaging in those delusions. That's when we both feel our pain the most and where we find our power. And I, and I think that part of the nature of this intersection of the individual and the collective and part of the imperfect and imprecise way that we send messages from the individual to the collective and f trickle down from the collective to the individual is just in the strength of numbers. In America, when our systems of power created a reality of a booming middle class where one person's income could support an entire family with a wife, two children, send them all to college, have a full house, a car, all of that bullshit, Enough of the population of this country was able to either point to their own lives or someone else's lives that were close to them, see rising wages, greater security, and believe that the system, the reality of things, was the best way that it could be arranged. And I think what's instructive... Complacence, though. But that complacency could only happen... Because the system did succeed for the people it succeeded for. For so a what, short time. For a very No, for, for over 40 years. But 40 years that, is a short time. But that is an eternity in the relative time scale. Even of nations that call themselves democracies. These things are so fragile. That well, period after I World agree. War II, I think, is derided when it's called an exception. But there's so much to learn from it in the sense that these beliefs that we can make through our systems toward justice can be so profound and they are always going to be limited by the blinded nature of our existence and our collective notion is always going to be limited and always going to have exceptions but when we have the technology and the ability to emotionally connect with everyone else who is set in the same struggle, no mm -hmm. matter how many ways we try to dress it up as different and as separate from ours, I think there's potential to really galvanize collective power and also to galvanize a lot of individual people's individual discovery of their own truth. Yes. Because I think that 
we can empathize and we can teach ourselves and develop that muscle to empathize with people, even if we don't relate to them in the class way, even if we don't share the experience of otherness in the particular way that other people's that other people have. And I and and for me, I do believe that does come from a radical acceptance of the fact that people are not disposable, that people are indispensable. I'll still want to talk about the day-to-day political shit because that does weigh on our lives in ways that I think we have undervalued. But one thing I really love about these episodes where we talk about very narrow or very like deep and broad topics like reality and the nature of truth is that those broader questions are underlying a lot of our individual struggles. Well, the broader questions build the foundations that become detailed, specific answers of individual situations. Yes. And they also build the world and the landscape in which we determine what our options are and where we stand and who our allies are and what being an ally even means. You know, the concept of like, is there an ally or are we all in this together? Like at, at a that's, certain. And that's, mm, go. sorry, go on. And, and one of the aspects of the concept of quote unquote ally is, are you a good ally? Are you a bad ally? Are you a middling ally? And, and, you know, whether that is with feminism or whether that is with racism or whether that is with classism or anything else, we can't expect people to have perfection, but we can develop dialogue that we should develop dialogue if we dedicate ourselves to always, always protecting, not the most... And lifting up. It's not this concept of lifting up because that presumes that these people are below us. That, you know, everybody deserves a place in society that we should develop a society that brings out the talents and qualities and if not the talents and qualities at least allow people to survive that that in itself is a good well and i should clarify i i said that the last one would be my last definition but when i say lift up i i do that is exactly what i mean like it even though I found many talents very easily and developed them after practice, um, but have had a natural ease with a lot of the skills that I have in my life, I've never deluded myself into thinking that there are people who don't have equal talents or even more profound talents hidden inside them that they don't have the luck of birth to be able to express. And so when I say lift up, I don't mean in the white savior sense because I don't believe anyone needs to be rescued from themselves. I think people need to be united with their power, their innate, I believe, power to become themselves. And that always requires help from other people. I don't think that that's a thing that any person 
is missing or any reason or if any person is deficient because of that, then we are all deficient to some level or another. I believe everyone can be lifted up. I think that a system built around a better model of reality, built around a more loving ideal for reality would even lift up the wealthy to teach them how If they have inherited all their money in the way that this new gilded age of ours is comprised mainly of people who have inherited their wealth, I believe that a better society will lift up people who are born into means by teaching them how other people lack means but do not lack talent and do not lack humanity and do not lack the capacity for great beauty and and achievement and love in this world. And I think that it's lifting up to teach rich people how to participate in society, not just by viewing people with less means as equally human, but by being forced to play in the game in a non-zero-sum way, by actively contributing the wealth that they have inherited into that system so that more people get quote-unquote luckier and we all get to miraculously discover that these people that we had consigned as useless are really unique and special and incredible people that we're just waiting to develop and just waiting to liberate from another reality that they were born into. And I think if we, I have every faith that if we would do that, we would magically discover people who are born into means can learn to empathize. But in that case, they have to be taught. They have to be taught because their luxury is such that they have the power and they have all of the resources now and they've gamed the system or rather the system was gained before they were even born to bequeath to them a system where they would get everything and their only model for success was having everything but all of those things being money and the coding and the programming that we give all of the players in the game has to change. Yeah. And I think, I think the details of that is what eventually ends up being the bigger argument. Well, and not you know, only because, that, but I think, yeah. I think the details of it are used as a way to derail having the conversation and derail having the deeper conversation in the first place. You know, because, because if we, a good example of that is the Gates Foundation and how it's impacting public education. Yes. You know, because some people would say that is the biggest example of a very wealthy man trying to lift up lift up right <laughs> you know and the, or lean forward if you it, lean, forward, <laughs> lean in <laughs> lean in baby right lean uh, in. i'm um, sorry you know and and so you know do you want workers or do you want thinkers well again i don't think I don't think it is zero sum. I don't necessarily I think, think it is zero sum, but I think it is the thinkers that make for the workers and not the workers that make for the thinkers. That you need to build thinkers. That's definitely true, but I also think it's the thinkers that become entrepreneurs whose ideas create the capacity and the investment and the real worthwhile capital that leads to demand for workers. You know, there is... There are ways that this game could be played that would create virtuous cycles that would give people a living wage for work. And I think to a certain degree that could be the part of the process, but that I do believe 
that as we as humans become more technologically advanced, as eventually technology replaces jobs, as technology replaces a lot of our employment. We derive so much as human beings from work that we our work so much defines of our us. Especially in terms of our value as people and also as value as people within the broader society. Yes. It's very much defined through that prism to the extent in America where until very recently our very health care was a condition of certain kinds of employment. Yes. And outside of those certain kinds of employment – we could only really count on the welfare of the state to provide health care. And again, I, I think you're I think that's very important for anyone listening who's worried about the future of politics and where we go from here. Not just the problems that we're inheriting right now, but where things are headed. It's fascinating. If you read into history, if you read into the romantics, a lot of also, and, and the early progressive fiction. movement. Well, putting aside the dystopia... No, no, not dystopia, but, you know, because science fiction isn't just dystopia. Well, the Star Trek model is one where we have created a better organizing model for humanity and for all species of life beyond mere profit and beyond the mere short term. Yeah. And a lot of the earliest progressives who were actually, in the end, very ideologically conservative people. A lot of the progressive movement was around the idea of liberating people from labor and freeing people from the definition of value as only being labor in the output of your labor. And I think a better organized model for society would provide people the basic guaranteed income and basic guaranteed necessities of life that free people from having to consign all of their time to working for wages that do not keep up with the cost of living. What you're talking about is basic guaranteed income. You're talking about the universal health care system, right. you know, and and what that does is not rewarding lazy people for not working, but that that is actually rewarding people for giving time to creativity to thinking to building communication to talking to other men and women and people and different experiences and building community because when you work 60 70 80 hours a week you only have time for sleep and eating and, and not only that, but basics. it devalues the ability to take real pride and derive real value as a person from your work if your whole definition of that work and the value you get from it is tied necessarily into the money you get for it because you don't get enough money for doing it. Yes. It unfairly aligns work with this exterior, external approval that is not a meaningful basis for defining self-worth. And further, I think the, the way that these conversations so often get derailed is by the contention and the supposition that if we're talking about a universal guaranteed income, that we're talking about a society where everyone tries to be an artist or tries and fails to be an artist and everyone is hippy-dippy. But no, a society 
under that arrangement of reality would be just as much in need of and as appreciative of people's efforts and the tangible benefits that they can create and the goods and services that can come out of that. But it would give people the freedom to develop those skills and develop pride in their craftsmanship at whatever trade or skill that is. And I think that is another thing that is deprived of people, especially in minimum income, minimum wage, or sub-minimum wage jobs. And it's unfortunate because it's not that people are getting paid what the market can bear. It is devaluing labor. It is devaluing labor. labor. And one thing that I will say is that a basic guaranteed income should have no bearing on a good living wage. Right. And, right. It's, and these are safe not... working conditions of productive working conditions that, you know, a basic Again, guaranteed income sum. does not eliminate the need for those things. Because we still, you know, generally speaking, if we are to have a basic income, at least in the close future, you know, presumably it would be limited to citizens of... A given nation, right? That like Switzerland is talking about the basic guaranteed income, and, makes... and they're not talking about all of Europe. They're talking about within the borders sure. of Switzerland. So for, sure, and yeah. that also doesn't preclude us from wanting laws and to create a reality for our immigration policies in this country that welcomes people who want to be American citizens into citizenship in this country. But it also sure. doesn't. It doesn't devalue the work that people do for them to receive a basic income outside of that work. If anything, again, it uncouples the quality of the work people do from the expectations that are placed on them by their employer or what that employer is willing or able to provide them. And that takes different forms in different countries. For instance, in Germany, since the the worldwide meltdown in 2008 happened, Germany has embarked in a work-sharing program where for employers that aren't able to pay full-time salaries, their workers will still and are still working full-time, and the government pays the salary for just a few hours of that employee's work day. And Germany has rebounded swiftly from that recession. Now, they have severe and I would argue racist immigration policies in their own way. But that's one way that a a kind of social participation and a social buy-in to the value of labor can increase and enhance the value of each individual worker in a society while still expanding the economy. Well, and I think we also have to start looking at this concept of this ever-expanding economy as something that we should strive for. I would say that the current organizing model of Profit right now has developed with it a pathological expectation that growth is only ever outward and upward and consume consuming not just consumption but cyclically larger consumption yes and cycles don't work that way 
but even positive economic feedback loops would involve creative destruction, would involve businesses failing sometimes. And in fact, I think some businesses of certain sizes, like too-big-to-fail banks, should be forced to fail and break up. That is one way that businesses and that people learn from their mistakes that have fucked with the rest of us is by going the fuck out of business. And you can set up an economy and set up a finance system that does not reward and socialize the losses of a predatory banking model the way that our bailouts have. But at the same time, I can't say that I wish we hadn't bailed out the banks in 2008 because that would have caused a global, worldwide, instantaneous economic depression. Well, it's one of those things where, you know, with that, I always, you know, resort to the, you know, working from the bottom up level of like, was there a way to help people, for example, to stay in their mortgage or rearrange their mortgage and make a concerted effort to keep people in homes, keep people with less destruction of disruption. In their lives. And the lack of political and social will that has always gone with protecting people. Because a lot of times what it is is that people are so much more invested in protecting institutions than protecting people. Well, and not just institutions but the accumulated power behind Behind those institutions institutions, yes yeah which i i think is more is much more dangerous because it can it facilitates and it gives an incentive to do exactly what we've been talking about which is hijack the language the positive ideas of that former institution the things that people trusted and turn it against the very people who are relying on it You know, and it's also this concept that people have that, you know, because a lot of times people have this concept that other people shouldn't have it better than they do. That we have so much focus on this quote-unquote equality rather than actual fairness or actual justice. Well, I I would say we no longer have that ideal of equality anymore. I think we actually have an ideal of competition. I think... I think there was a point in America when we had both that ideal and the systems that backed it up. And, and again, what was that? Uh, that's the post-World War II ideal and I'm that talking was, about. Yeah, but, but, but that, that still exempted. I mean, you know, the but, first post-World but that's my, War But that's my point. Yeah. But that's my point is that our expressions of those ideals will always be limited by the privileges and by the blindness that we are raised with. And you have to be able to not accept those deficiencies, but take into account what was successful about and where that power coalesced and how it got together and, and made results and made a new reality. Because... That fundamental ideal of equality is what the Reaganomics movement and the conservative movement have destroyed. I think it is that 
principle of equality that has been destroyed by the right wing and it hijacked the language of it, but I don't think it actually exists in our minds anymore. I don't think America and Americans have that much of a civic ideal or a civic identity anymore. I think the right wing movement, the conservative reframing of America as a predatory take all prisoners, zero sum game has eroded even the ideal, imperfect as it was, even at its finest expression in our history. And I think that is kind of the separation maybe of the difference of your philosophy and my philosophy because I feel like the foundation has been rotten. And that every no, I, I don't think I don't think I don't think we're different in that. I think and I don't necessarily I think, think saying, I don't think we're different in that at all. I don't necessarily think that, you know, United States is some kind of exception to a rotten foundation. I think that rotten foundation is capitalism that we should try and imagine. I mean, because we've had hundreds of years of it. No, no, we ha- we haven't had hundreds of years of the same kind of capitalism. We just haven't. We just haven't. It's easy to collapse history into an idea of that, but the models and the iterations have changed wildly has, over our it history. It has, but the foundation has been that people have been disposable, that we can take advantage of populations, that we can but exploit that- people that that is the foundation of capitalism that is the foundation of profit i don't think it's the foundation of all economies and i don't necessarily think it's the foundation of all possible forms of capitalism but i completely agree that it is the operating pathology in this kind of capitalism right now and has been for my entire lifetime I see the period after World War II as a period of exceptionalism only in the sense that the ruling class and the ruling powers in America found a democratic means of building a socialist and capitalist economy that was hugely expansive, even though a lot of that growth did come from building a war machine, But it was hugely expansive and used the power of the state to advance collective and individual well-being. And that did, again, fail as all systems fail and as all ideals fail along the lines, in the cracks in the road, in the crevices of our empathy and who we are taught not to empathize with. That is part of, you know, the American education is that we have been so thoroughly educated We've for been propagandized. Capital, for We've been propagandized to believe that this is an equal economy, yes. to believe this is the only way, to believe this is the way that our economy always has been. Like, I, I, I didn't even get a real grounding in what the New Deal meant until after I was out of school, was out of official schooling. Yeah. And, and also was never taught the roots of the depression in the rapaciousness of the banking system, in the 
the non-existence of solid sound regulations and regulators who weren't captured by the banks and organizations they were supposed to regulate. It's it's learning about these systemic things yes. that our educational system does not, not teach. Provide, yeah. And I think that, again, like we were talking about when we talked about in our last episode, K through 12 education in this country and now to a greater extent college education, it's about reinforcing the dominant models of reality that are with us now. It's not about interrogating those models of reality. It's not about expanding students' imaginations to create new ones. It's about creating obedient servants to the old ways, obedient meat to throw into the grinder of the old unsustainable system. And just because they can feed that system doesn't make it any more sustainable in my eyes. And that, that is kind of, you know, the point that I'm trying to make is that whether it's about cap- capitalism, whether it's about socialism, whether it's about communism or whether it's about any of these is, you know, these structures in place. You know, I can't say I'm an expert in one or any of them. Because no one is. And any countries that do become like exclusively about them are pulling themselves apart. Like America, again. Well, and it's one of those things where what I would like to see is a serious examination that we shouldn't necessarily hold on to. You know, because, for example, like, we haven't really seen... I mean, a lot of the the social structures that we see in place are, are... kind of a repeat of a lot of problems that have or, been... Or, or are a overhanging reactionary response to a problem that happened a long time ago where we put in place the solution to what we see as the problem, whether we're seeing a solution or the actual root issue, and then we take an action and that becomes well, and institutionalized and, and systemic. And that's what I'm trying yeah. to say. You know, the, the most common question of being critical is that, well, what's your answer? Right. You know, and my honest answer is often that, like, I don't have an answer and I would like one as much as you do, but I do not have enough information. I would like more information. I would like to talk to people. I would like to learn more. No, that's 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 really wonderful because it goes straight to the heart of what for me was my process of developing my beliefs, which is. Getting more information, weighing it against the true experience that I've had and the true experiences I hear from the people I love and the people I can connect with online and around the world. And we have to develop our own individual ways of weighing information. And I think it's really important to get across to people not to trust institutions to give you information unless you understand what their incentives are. Yeah. Because – You don't know unless you know if what they're telling you is true. It may be real in the profit margin or profit motive of whatever that company or institution is, but it may not be true at all. And further, buying into that myth may fuck up your reality and a lot of other folks' reality. I think that is the aspect that I'm trying to get at is that it's not trying to buy into something but it is trying to analyze and it well but it's also trying to build that something from within yourself to find it in yourself because i think it is there and i think that when people see learn to seek information 
and learn to weigh information and learn to take into account that they may have biases. I think that's where real wisdom and real critical thinking comes because exactly as you said, I've lived long enough to know that I don't know the fucking right answers. I'm rarely, if ever, going to always know the right answers. And what may be the right answer at one point may be totally wrong later on. What I've learned and what is the most illuminating for me in finding what I really believe in and finding the truth in people's realities and in these ideas is to ask the right questions, to learn to ask the right questions. Because that will take you to different answers over time, but it will take you to the right answers. And further, it will illuminate the things that you're getting wrong about your own thought process or things that you've inherited. It's not a matter of right questions or wrong questions, but what I always try to look at in any given situation is, you know, what are my assumptions here? What are my assumptions that I'm not challenging? Yes. Yes. Not only that, but what are the assumptions that that I'm I'm being asked to take on? Or that I'm not even thinking about. A lot of times it's the things that you don't even realize are assumptions. That for me goes, it calls back the kind of, moment of American exceptionalism that we've been talking about because the nature of privilege itself is blindness. And I think we can both fault and hold those people responsible for the racist ways in which they allowed their idea and their thought process of progress to falter and to fall short. But I think it's important to recognize the power that was coalesced and that yielded such durable results because it took the Reagan revolution to undo those systems and those principles. And it took a long time for the undoing of those systems and principles to trickle down throughout society. Well, you know, I think that's the that's the big issue, though. Nobody gave a fuck until the middle class was dying. The poor had always been poor. The poor had always gone. But there was not but there was not a middle class in this country until we built one. There was not a middle class until the Civil War, basically. There was no middle class. The economic expansion that really built like real cities in the way that we understand it now didn't come until like Civil War era and onward. In a sense, it requires that stunted, narrowed, stymied, limited model of growth and progress, I think, to illuminate its own shortcomings and to illuminate the path to a better, more open, more inclusive Oh no, I mean I'm not model of it. Yeah. I'm because not I, saying that what happened in like the forties and fifties and sixties were not valid. That's not what I'm saying because people were working under more constrained, more assumptive, more limited mindsets. You know, that is that is the benefit of progress is that those ahead of us can look back and go wow yeah that was really limited right that that you know because i mean i would be sad if 
you know, people a hundred years from now looked back and said, oh, those were really nifty people. Like, a hundred years from now, I would like to be a a really backward redneck, (laughs) you know? And and I say that with a term of endearment because I'm from the South, you know, but that, you know. As am I, all love to the rednecks. You know, but that people would look at that and go, by God, that was like really did they not was this an issue back then like i would like people to look at what i'm saying now and go and look at me like i am pat robertson type conservative we should be so lucky that we should well and and not only that but what that is that is literally being able to look at another set of people and say wow their image of their reality does not fit my true experience of life at all, at all, to the point where it seems like a foreign species. So it's one of those things where, yeah, like, I would like people in the future to look back to the crap I'm saying going, you know, like, isn't that elementary or isn't that like one plus one equals two or is that like something to even question? Yes. That is what I would like from the future and at the same time for somebody that is looking back to our past that we don't look back with rosy glasses, but that we look to the past with serious criticism. Doing better. Especially of ourselves. Always better than they did. Of understanding Well, and more. even doing better, again, doing better than we used to. Yeah. No, and and so also, that, like, questioning what that better is. Yes, and I think that's... That's that I think where we that's I think where we ultimately meet on that kind of middle class that America created under law and made real with our systems. The things that you have to let go of and embrace in order to make a more reflective version of reality, a more honest and either idealistic or more opportunistic vision for reality. The things that you have to remember and forget to make that happen are very different across time. They're very, very different. What we collectively, what America after the New Deal wanted to free people from were fascism to a lesser extent, but poverty, the unbearable deprivation of the Great Depression, the omnipresent economic misery that was the day-to-day reality and truth of a huge portion of Americans. Enough that collectively we as a country could not pretend that that wasn't happening. What we have to forget now is fear. And we have had American leaders who tried to liberate us using our systems and power from fear. But we've never had a ground up movement to eradicate fear and to liberate ourselves from fear that did not fall apart along those old lines of fear that were set up for us to set us against each other. And so it is, you're exactly right, and we ha- we always have to remember and have to keep in mind that whatever systems or institutions or businesses or culture or art that we create and communities that we create to liberate ourselves from our old prejudices, our old outmoded versions of reality, and our old fears are going to be different over time. They're not going to – they're going to – be made of the pieces of what has come before because that's what we have. That's what we're inheriting. But we are going to fall short of perfection in that. 
We always are. Yeah. Even if we try to liberate ourselves from fear, there are things about fear that are healthy that fear make us more condition. attentive to the dangers and risks around us. And so there's going to be there's going to have to be balance in any kind of system that we create if we expect it to be resilient. And it's the result of a zero sum game that things become all or nothing that you come to believe that rich people have to have everything or that we're all going to die. <laughs> the belief that we have to well, pump everything out of the ground or we're going to implode. The idea that our enemies or our opponents all have to die or lose or be humiliated and ashamed in order for us to do okay. It creates those bad outcomes. It creates those bad feedback loops. And I think to a degree that's true, but I also like, you know, it, it's, I don't think it's necessarily a zero sum game. I think it's kicking the can down the line. Like one of the, the biggest aspects of, you know, take the French Revolution, right? That's a fairly more recent aspect of social instability, you know, and the Sun King, you know, which was the Louis that lost his head along with Marie Antoinette, mm -hmm. right? His grandfather was his father, grandfather, I think excuse my ignorance, the Sun King was very confident that social instability was coming, that there was going to be bloodshed, very likely of his own kin. He just didn't care as long as it didn't happen in his lifetime. Right. That's, in my mind, that's analogous to people who work in the oil and gas industries now who might even accept the conclusion of the vast majority of the world's climate scientists that humans are with our extraction and with our burning of fossil fuels going to make this planet uninhabitable and just think well you know i'll be dead by then why do i care but we're going to arrive at a point very soon where we don't have the luxury of saying that well, I or deluding ourselves of, into thinking that. Well, the hubris people always forget is that they believe that those things come on their time scale. Oh, right. They, no, they, it's, they assume again, they're going to be yes. dead. You know, <laughs> again, but, it's part of it's part of that. It's that ego trick of separateness, that idea that we're going to be separate not just from these systems that we're paying into and that are affecting us, but also that we're separate from the climate systems even, that we're separate from the consequences of our collective actions. Or that, that they feel that technology, oh, there will be technology in 20 years that can right. control climate, that right. will reverse That will clean it up somehow. Yeah. It's often interesting to me because sometimes this, the very people who – wield the tremendous machines, literal and figurative, of destruction and exploitation will also be the very people who deny that humanity is powerful enough to change the world at all. Well, but that's, and it's so, that's always the moving goalpost. Everything yes. is, we're powerful when we want to be. We are powerless when we when, is, when it is more convenient for us. And when to, it makes us not feel guilty. Yeah. And, and to a certain degree, you know, uh, part of understanding that mechanism is understanding that that is a human mindset that is something in all of us right and that there degree. and that it's up to systems not to eradicate our human impulses but to bring them out of us in the most constructive and least destructive way possible, possible. that you know i mean 
fundamentally social structures and institution, and this is my opinion, but my feeling about social structures and institutions, and the reason that things, you know, have not radically improved as much as I would like in the few hundred years of enlightenment or whatever you want to call it, is the fact that it has not invested itself in the protection of those that are not weak, but most vulnerable. I definitely think that's true. And I think another kind of part of our collective pathology that is it is the idea of America as an end state, as like a finished product that is up and running, as opposed to a product that is always in development always changing, always evolving or devolving. And I think, I think that's think, true with any nationality, though, is that a lot of times oh, patriotism oh, certainly, certainly. and nationalism, no, totally. you know, you will get that in every single country. The well, only yeah, that, that's reason, the nature of nat- nationalism, nationalism, I think. Yeah. You know, the only reason that, you know, what Americans think and, and our policies, why it's so important is because our fingers are in everybody's pockets. <laughs> well, and we're still the only remaining superpower. Exactly. You know, I mean, and that comes with our fingers being in everybody's pockets to a certain degree, you know, of however you want to define what that means. You know, whether it's our policies impacting them or, you know, their resources impacting Yeah, us. but again, it's it's a consequence of this stilted fucking view of reality that we as a country collectively hold – that we have it in our budgets to send unmanned armed drones into a dozen countries we haven't declared war on, kill brown people, including thousands of innocents, that we have the money to launch multiple wars on the credit card, that we have the money to tax rich people at the lowest rate in like three or four generations, literally since that exceptional time I was talking about earlier, and yet we don't have money to build infrastructure. We have crumbling infrastructure right build now. Build more speak. schools and guarantee every citizen of this country education. Guarantee every citizen of this country some kind of income and some kind of work or the opportunity to learn some kind of work. And it, again, I think that's for anyone listening who's less familiar with the specifics of politics that we talk about quite often on this show. That should be a good entry point for anyone to start thinking about politics in this country and to start understanding how it affects you individually. Because whether or not you participate in politics, politics participates in you. (laughs) (laughs) And it participates in multiple ways. Electoral politics is only one aspect of being politically active, you know. And it's just voting should not be the the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega of your act. Yes, but But at this point, the image of citizenship in this country and the norms and expectations that that's created are such that I don't think people even understand the importance of voting as a beginning first important step. I believe that cynicism is not a fixed quantity in this life. And I believe that cynicism that so many people in this country have 
and the disillusionment is both one manufactured that's profitable to the people who thrive and make great amounts of money from our cynicism and our dropping out and two that it comes from us facing the fact Mm-hmm. That this reality no longer aligns with our truth and people just feel so lost that they tune out rather than trying to tune yep. in to what's around them. Ellen, and I think I what's really important to hold on to is to stay tuning in, to keep trying to understand for yourself and for everyone you care about how our actions and our beliefs are affecting each other because we cannot separate ourselves from them. And if we try to fly blind, we will crash. <laughs> yes. But I think, you know, part of what I'm talking about in voting is also that it's not just voting for politicians, but that, you know, I think a lot of times people forget that we do and can have the ability to create policy. Through legislature. Not only that, but we could theoretically make constitutional amendments, for instance, to get money out of politics, to guarantee every American a basic income. We could ratify the Equal Rights Amendment that's been around since before I was a zygote. Um, we, I think that, we that really, came right around the, when I was a fetus. Maybe. Yeah, um, like the fact that it seems crazy that we could do those things is only to me Again, an indictment of all of our collective and individual failures of imagination and our failure to recognize our power. But it's not a thing we should feel guilt and shame about. We need to understand that it's profitable for us to be made to feel powerless. It is profitable to make people forget the power they have as individuals and the power they have together. And so if nothing else, I want this episode of the By That I Mean podcast to be galvanizing to you, dear listener, because I'm not going to be able to make a million podcasts. And no matter how much research I do or don't do and how many facts I hold on to or not, I'm not going to have the perfect answer for you. Ikoi is not going to have the perfect answer for you. Nobody is going to have a perfect answer, but that we should constantly strive to learn more. And we should try to get together to check our facts with each other, to check our perceptions and the distortions of perception that we all fall prey to with each other. Yes. Because when we get together, when we ex- uh, when we exert and build and nurture our power together, we are able to better realize where we aren't seeing. We're better able to think about what we aren't able to think about alone. Or we are able to realize that, you know, this is a good thing that this is something worth fighting for. Right. That's what that's what allows us the luxury of being able to identify and pick out the good things that our country has done and separate them from the horrible aspects of those actions or those programs or those laws that come with just the fact that it's people working together with imperfect knowledge, imperfect power, imperfect solutions. But we should also be willing to stake new ground. Right. And transcending the unknown is not really something you can ever hope to do. When, I, when we talk about systems of power, 
setting new rules or making new laws. We're not talking about controlling the truth. All these things we're talking about are not meant in the Orwellian fashion of looking at a sky in the morning and saying, that sky is green. That sky has always been green, and it will always be green. That's not the point, because that would just be a retreat into the old kind of reality setting that we should all be trying to get away from, because that is what's limiting us and what's allowing us to exploit each other and to be exploited without examining it. And also, you know, technology is changing the pace of change. That too, and, it, and it's hard to put a point on it because that transition is happening so fast. Well, In but regardless ways. of the pace of it, again, we another bit of wisdom I've learned, aside from how much I don't know, is how little I actually control. How Well, it's one of those things where I, I don't necessarily think that you know, it's bad to have confidence in what you know as long as you're willing to know more. Right, and as long as you're willing to accept when you're wrong because you're going to be. Yes, you know, and one of the aspects that I am worried about technology is when people don't understand technology and when people don't understand context and nuance, because what makes technology harmful is not technology in itself, but how it's utilized and how it's not just utilized, but promoted. I think the topic that brings up is that really the internet at this point is so open. It is such a wild west situation, if only on the individual side. There are not the systems of power and rules and rights and principles in place and made real with laws and governments that would give individuals the freedom to, for instance, own their own information on the internet or own their digital identities and have the right not to be profited off of without their permission or participation. So what we have now is a domination much like the robber barons dominated America before the Civil War. What we have is a few telecom companies dominating all of the means of conveyance for all our communications. Mm -hmm. And that sets the tone, that trickles down, and therefore all the services that we also have and all the systems that we have are transactional, they're instantaneous, they're not built for nuance and depth and emotionality, and real honest exchange. They are built for warfare and competition and profit. And as such, we still live in a time right now when our internet, which is so young, I think is a global consciousness. But I also think it is a global system that needs to have rules and needs to have rules that protect the most vulnerable among us. And part of that, I think, is Again, removing the exploitation of, for instance, Facebook making billions of dollars just by selling people's information without giving them a cent of it. Yes. But also part of it is our own individual responsibility to learn how to navigate the Internet, but navigate the information glut given to us by the Internet in a way that doesn't lead us down the garden path to fascism and to hate groups which are so omnipresent now in this country in Obama's era and into all these 
horrible, fake, imposed, and distorted realities that lead people to really be violent and horrible to each other. But it was interesting that you brought up the French Revolution because that's where the Illuminati conspiracy was first born. <laughs> it was born out of... Um, it was created by like a, a, a scientist, a very thoughtful philosopher kind of person who was afraid that the Enlightenment and that the French Revolution were going to bring about this society that was so full of logic and reason that they would all be atheists and that there would be no room for the church. And so the church as an institution was incredibly scared of losing its power. So it created a narrative, a story with easily identifiable heroes and villains. So we could, we could all, no matter how gullible we were, could be drawn to identify this specific set of actors as the real problem when the real problem was fucked up systems, fucked up abusive, exploitative hierarchies and power relationships that were based on abuse. And it's always in the nature of those systems to try to find a story that will prop itself up. But when we have global communication and when we don't have middlemen that we trust People are, to a large extent, left to their own devices. But, um, like, kind of wrapping up the final summation of what we've been talking about, <clears throat> I think, and I know you think, that people individually will find and can find their greatest power within themselves and within their own faculties, as limited as they are, but only when they get together with other people. And the reality that they find that they share and the truth that we can all relate to each other with will allow us to transcend some of the kind of blinders that we are raised to have and some of the fuckery that evil people among us try to per uh, perpetuate and perpetrate on all of us. It may never be perfect. It won't be when it's humans doing it. And I don't think technology will be any better because it's a product of human ingenuity. You know, the whole concept of, of people being good and evil is that evil is incredibly banal. I mean, I'm a huge fan of, you know, Hannah Rent and the banality of evil. Yes. Well, and, it, and I think it's not just banal. I think it's, I think good and evil are products of the games that we set up. When we make the game zero or negative sum to where one person's profit has to come at the expense of others, that creates incentives to do evil. Yeah. And in a capitalist society that defines a, yeah. profit in the short term as the absolute good, you are creating a zero sum at best and negative sum at worst and in reality set of circumstances. Well, and I think it's also, you know, for for me, the, the biggest factor of trying to look at the world is to stop looking at the world in terms of hierarchy. Yes. Because that is, to a certain degree, one of the biggest violence that has been imposed. I mean, by definition, are you going to have more fortunate people, more lucky people, more blessed people, more beautiful people, more informed more, people, more informed people, more <laughs> smarter people, you know, but that, you know, the systems in place should be as blind as possible to that to provide maximum benefit for everybody. 
where the notion of hierarchy becomes dangerous is when it's the ideology, when it is the end in and of itself, when you're organizing principle is that, oh, well, it's a society. Some people must be above others. Who do we put at the top? Yeah. And I think there's not, you know, and for me, like when I mean hierarchy, what I mean is rigid hierarchy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, because, you know, I mean, there is a benefit of having leaders. You know, you have a group of four people, you know, somebody, you know, the most informed. Well, not only that, not only that, but in my reading of good and evil, it is systems that bring out the incentives of good and evil in people. But it's ultimately up to individual people whether to commit good or bad acts. And it is the mark of a leader to refuse to commit evil acts when called upon to do so or to do positively good acts in an evil system when all the incentives go the other way. Like there is nothing but room for leadership in the kind of arrangements that we're talking about. It's just an abandonment and a letting go of the need to have people above you to define reality for you that we're talking about. And I think a lot of the fear comes from people thinking that there has to be someone above them to make reality or they will just flail and float and be alone. But I think what we're getting at is that none of us are alone and we don't need people above us. We don't need rulers to define for us what is the better path to take, what is the more real or the more good path to take for our lives. All these things can get into such complex discussions, but one aspect too is that, you know, I mean, for example, when I say rigid hierarchies, I say rigid hierarchies because we have this idea of what's valuable and what is not valuable that goes beyond individual situations, but that is static. You know, whether it's an aggregate or whether it's an individual, yes. you know, and and that is what I'm trying to speak against, you know, because like, for example, like, you know, when the four of us get together and we go camping, right? Somebody that has the most camping experience and wilderness experience, we should listen to him. <laughs> right? right? Instead right. of me. Like, you know, we are not necessarily equal all the time as individuals and that's fine. Right. But that we should be careful of rigid hierarchies, that our hierarchies should be flexible depending on the situation. Well, and, and not only that, but that hierarchy and differences of power, knowledge, skills, or expertise should not be used as justifications for abuse yes. and exploitation Station. and putting down. They should be seen as obligations to provide, to share, to enrich, to nourish, to grow. Like and I, that I we very much talk to each other. For exactly. Example, I think if, the kinds of systems that we're talking about are ones that view humans as gardens and as the soil for gardens to grow, not as widgets to be produced and dispensed with later on when they are no longer of any use. And also, I think the importance in that kind of understanding of the model is that it by nature makes you avoid zero-sum games. 
because it's a positive something. You put water in and you get something that was not there before. You put in sunlight and nutrients and you grow a thing that was not there that you could not have seen would have arisen from that seed, from that soil. You were not certain of it and you didn't necessarily control it, but you had the ability to grow it and to make it flourish. And that I think by by its very form, taking that kind of attitude toward yourself toward your beliefs, toward your communities and the other people around you helps you avoid using your power as an excuse to hurt other people because it keeps you more mindful of how we really grow, of how you grow yourself. And I do think a lot of times in order to avoid the zero-sum game, it comes down to, you know, always thinking about what, who is the most vulnerable and trying to push for, you know, systems and laws and structures and changes that is, that considers the invisible ideas that we have been taught our entire life to not value. And the, and the people we've been taught to believe yeah. are invisible. Yeah. Because and that the comes suffering from that, that we've that been taught to be from that, blind that, to. Yeah. Yes. That, that all comes from, you know, that idea of, of you know, because, I mean, a lot of times, you know, you don't come to this conclusion of people being unworthy unless you find values in those people that you find unworthy. That it is that idea that Right, and then it no longer becomes to. about, it, it no longer becomes about what you can extract from someone or get from them. It becomes about what you can contribute to them, what you can get them to them. discover in themselves, what they can teach you. Everybody benefits. Yes. yes. It's positive Everybody. some. Crazy how that works. Everybody benefits from a society where everybody is at the very minimum, you know, that their very basic needs are not something that they have to fight for. Right. And that is the greatest way both in which the New Deal succeeded and also the greatest way in which it failed. Because it very specifically set categories of Americans who would be excluded from that act of progressive governance and that creation of a middle class i think well, and it's one of those things where i guess you know because people often talk about the creation of a middle class and and i'm really not so much interested in the creation of a middle class as i am eliminating the lower class well eliminating the deprivation okay. and poverty that characterize yes. the lower class yeah. well, and it, yes and i i and, I, and those it, sound well like and there's a lot of well but there's a lot of specific truth in that especially at our political moment now yeah. Where even the party, the political party that claims itself to be progressive, has mostly used that rhetoric in the service of, of policies to benefit the middle class. That said, they are pushing to raise the minimum wage, but I still don't think even the goal of $10.10 .10 an hour is a living wage in Los Angeles. 
Or or anywhere. I mean, for example, you know, Seattle. It's a, it's a living wage in a lot of the flyover country. It would be because the cost of living there is so much cheaper. But yes, that said, but that's that also, said. But that said, that's not a living wage in terms of ensuring a secure retirement. Ensuring. Oh, yeah. That's to say secu- nothing of retirement and the, the yeah. mirage that's become in this country. You know, of retirement yeah. of like, you know, because. Building wealth either. Not even building wealth, but building survivability. Because even with our current Affordable Care Act, health insurance is not necessarily, it eases health care, but that it is not health care. It's a middleman. It is a middleman. And I don't believe, I, I do personally believe that health care is a universal right that all to which all people should be entitled. I think the Affordable Care Act is the most strenuous attempt that this country has ever undergone by far to enact a private national health care system. We'll see how well that works. The, there, all the aspects of the law that will actually change health care delivery are not quite implemented yet. The only part of it that is is the 80-20 rule where 80% of the premium dollars have to be spent on health care. And that's already had huge benefits to people yes. in the form of literal rebate checks. But, but I don't think that negates the broader point that, in, that, that a better reality, a better model of ideal reality for this society or any society is the provision of health care as a basic right of humanity. And I do think this concept that anybody should benefit, profit from illness. I haven't heard a good argument as to how profit motive enhances health care in any way, shape, or form. Yes. That's, I think, another aspect of this mode of reality that needs to be interrogated and i think in conclusion this really ties this episode into all the issues that we've ever talked about on this show whether it's healthcare whether it's education whether it's this country's crumbling infrastructure and how we plan to replace it in an era of climate change and even more variability in our climate whether it's what it means to be a good citizen and how we participate in our political system, we have to start asking the question of whether profiting from this enhances the public goods that we all rely on and that the whole system, including our economy, needs to survive and function. We have to question, we have to ask the question of whether the profit motive helps or hurts the provision of public goods in our society. At this stage of the internet, where the FCC is getting ready to throw net neutrality out of the window, do we think that an infrastructure for communications around the world, and specifically in this country, that you and I paid for with exorbitant fucking internet bills every year, Do you really think that that doesn't belong in the public's hands? Do you really think that the internet, which you need to even apply for a job now, how is that not a public good? And if it is a public good, 
How is it better in the hands of private companies whose business model is selling your data and your information and your digital identity? How is that a better way to provide that public service and to ensure that we have access to it? And so in other, in future episodes of the By That I Mean podcast, we'll be talking about all the specific ways that that's playing out. But I really am so glad, Ikoi, that you were here to talk with me about this broader set of questions and this broader need to ask questions rather than always obsessing about finding the perfect answer. Because we have so many failing systems and we have so many misguided rules and laws and expectations and cultural codes and ways that we have been taught to view each other and ourselves and our very love and our dreams for what we're supposed to be doing with our lives. And we don't have control over most of it. (laughs) But we have so much power within ourselves and with each other to change our perceptions, to change our reality, and to work with each other to make things better and to make better systems. But we have to ask ourselves how we're going to make the good things come about. We have to ask if the ways that we've provided these things or tried to provide these things are really helping. We have to ask if the things that we've believed are solutions were really addressing problems, or just trying to patch up symptoms. And if you don't ask those questions, then you keep fucking up in the same ways over and And over over and and over over again. And all these things stop you from dreaming. They do. They make it easy to believe that dreaming is not a necessary thing. That it doesn't, much like uh, the single-minded idea of profit right now devalues labor, it also devalues imagination. Imagination, it devalues people. Um, you know, it, 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 at the end of the day, devalues everything a lot of times. At, at least the form that we see it now, because everything comes with a hierarchical monetary value. You're a dollar ninety nine, or you're hundred ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine ninety nine, and those have solid meanings behind them. Right yes, now. exactly. And so, even if we build a political system in this country that can raise a minimum wage to a certain dollar and cents number, that does not mean we have transcended the mindset. And the fucked up perspective and perceptions of other people that we have that still tie us in to attaching people's worth to whatever lowest amount of money some employer is willing to compensate them with. Yes. As Chris Rock said, minimum wage means if they could pay you less, they would. It's so true. I mean, that's paraphrasing. It's so true. And even now we have Republicans who argue that there should be openly against the minimum wage. That's one of the main goals of the Koch brothers, personally and professionally, (laughs) is to abolish the minimum wage. And so even that's why I think trying to get a broader perspective beyond just the day to day things has made recording this podcast richer for me. And I hope it's making it a richer listening experience, even if it's not as often 
<laughs> as it used to be for people. But I really want to lay out when we record these, not just what we believe at any moment, but how we're coming about what we believe. Because and, yeah. I think if more folks had the opportunity and had the tools that we have equipped ourselves with, that they wouldn't be so scared. Because I, I really think it is the cycles of anxiety and, and fear, fear that keep people locked in into themselves, into their idea of powerlessness, and into a complacency that there's nothing they can do to change it. Yeah. And that there's m- many, many ways to change it. Yes, there, there is more than one way to skin that cat. You know, and that we should explore that many ways as much as possible. And we will explore many more ways of skinning cats on future episodes of the By That I Mean (laughs) podcast. But until then, I'm Seth Pearson. I'm Ikoi Hiro. And this has been the By That I Mean podcast. If you have enjoyed or have gotten something new to think about from this episode, please leave us a comment on our Facebook page where your personal information is sold without any benefit to you. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com slash by that I mean. You can reach me on the Twitter machines at MFP Seth. I don't think you can reach Ikoi at any of the Twitter machines. As <laughs> she My cannot... Twitter is inactive. I cannot be contained in, in a limited character. Limitation? Limited character limitation, no. Yes, the limited character limitation. Yes, I refuse to be, my verbosity refuses to be contained. (laughs) (laughs) I shall be long-winded. You farm out your romance, but you keep the verbose indoors. You keep that inside. It's. I I feel like you're prioritizing some of the right things. I feel like that works out generally. Um, If you liked this podcast, please subscribe to it. We can be subscribed to on iTunes. Um, If you just search for the By That I Mean podcast in the iTunes store, you can find us. And if you subscribe to us and enjoy us, then please leave us a review. If you leave us more reviews, then Apple in their bullshit ranking algorithms give us more promotion. So yes, the mere act of you showing your love and revealing your love to us will make it true that we will get more listeners. You can help bring this to more people. Or, you know, if you don't like it, you can just ignore it. Um, But either way, I I hope you've gotten something out of it. And I hope, even if you don't necessarily find new answers for yourself, that Ikoi and I at least give you some more questions and encourage you a little bit to ask some more questions for yourself. Um, Thank you for listening. And the By That I Mean podcast was a production of the MFP studio in Los Angeles, California. Keep skinning that cat.